This is a Founding Media podcast. Welcome to the Balanced Badassery podcast, your weekly fix of wellness wisdom. I am your host, Ali Waddell. This week, we got to sit down with Ryan Freisinger of The Cosmic Animal. We talked about environment, trauma, what it does to your body, how you're going to fix it, and how to literally do less and live more. So here's my convo with Ryan Freisinger. Super excited to have Ryan Freisinger here today to talk about environment and how important having a healthy environment is not only just for your personal health, but for your wellness and for you to be able to thrive. Because as you can imagine, if you live in a shit environment, your life's pretty shitty. (laughs) (laughs) So Ryan, introduce yourself to the Badass Brigade, please. Uh, Hello, everyone. Thank you, Ali, for having me on. My name is Ryan. I run a genetics consulting service called Cosmic Animal. Um, And it's a fairly unique thing because I dive really deeply into people and kind of contextualize genetics in a very different way than anyone that I know of in the United States. And as we talk about environment today, we'll talk about why genetics mean a lot when we talk about context and geography and place and time of day and season and kind of why all those things are kind of the things that people skip over Mm -hmm. as they search for esoteric reasons why they're not doing well. And it tends to be more everyday problems that are kind of reprogramming their physiology. Yeah. And that's something that I really connected with when I first actually, I heard Ryan on stage two or three years ago at Paleo FX and really was talking about kind of plant and general environment and how that's impacting us and how us even just as a society, we're not really looking at that. And so why the it's no surprise then that we're not looking at our own environment if we're not even thinking about the global environment in which we live. And uh, that's what I really was so intrigued by because you have this way in which to take a very high level view of things and at the same time explain them and put them in actionable steps for people in the everyday, because as you said, it is the everyday in which you're living and people want to like do these big giant things and it's this and it's that. And you're like, actually, it's these small minutia, fine details that you're missing that could really help you. So kind of give me your general first kind of definition of what you would say would be somebody's kind of environment. What would that what would that all entail? And then. Um, how do you how do you help people to understand the importance of that? Okay, so I'll kind of do that in reverse. Okay, I perfect. think the most important thing to understand is we're in an era of individualized medicine, mm-hmm. personal medicine, N equals one, biohacking, and the problem is we're in a culture that has a lot of problematic kind of things that it's set into its architecture, and mm-hmm. so. When I start working with people, we first talk about the cultural context, and then we look at the familial context and start to unpack all of that because that's what's interfacing with the genetic material. Mm. So when you think of environment, environment really should just be thought of the information that's coming into the body. So that's the place that you live, the sights and sounds and the things that you kind of generally surround yourself in in your everyday life. 
So when people talk about it in terms of like circadian biology, we're talking about light and dark periods. We're talking about how much ambient noise is in your environment during the day. We're talking about how much you're in vehicles, the types of food that you eat. So pretty much anything that's coming into the body should be considered environment. We're not just talking about landscapes or kind of relationships. We're talking about those global informational feeds that are coming into the body, which are continuously programming the, the genes and the cells in the body to react and do certain things. Yeah, and I'd love us to go or you to go into a little more depth of, I think for a lot of people, that's even like a aha moment that they may, may have never thought of. They're like, what do you mean things are influencing my genes? Because I think when you learn in biology, when you're in seventh grade, you're like, genes, do this. And that's how it is. You know, I was born with blue eyes. They or shall I have blue eyes for the rest of my life. And And what you really explain to people is like, your genes are turning on and off all the time and shifting and mm -hmm. can can do different things depending on what inputs they're getting. Yeah, absolutely. So the genes are really an interface that's determining phenotype. So if you took a genetic blueprint and you imported it into different geographies, physiologically you would have resemblances, but you would not have the same person. Mm -hmm. So when we look at kind of genes and epigenetics, it is an epigenetic reality that we live in. The problem is, is that epigenetics is not guaranteed physiologically. So there are pathways in the body that either work or they don't. And so when they're inundated by environmental mismatches over time, the epigenetics kind of falls apart. So you do end up and more of these deterministic expressions of genes. Mm -hmm. The thing to also understand about genes, it's a very gendered way of understanding it. So in science, when you look at the language of genetics, it's very masculinized. Mm -hmm. And genes are seen as these progenating forces that generate people. And the reality is genes are subservient to cells. Mm -hmm. And the proteins in the body have to properly fold in order for genetics to express themselves. So there's a lot of ways in which we're conceptualizing even genetic material that is highly problematic when we talk about kind of the everyday experiences of a person in the environment. So when I talk to somebody, what we're looking at is the long history of a person through time. And we're looking at the places where sunlight is no longer impacting your physiology appropriately, where non-natural non forms of light, electromagnetic radiation, and how all of those things are kind of coming through, how much water is in the body, mm -hmm. how well your, your mineral status is and the, how mineralized you are, how your vitamin statuses are. And we're looking at that first and foremost because the body's location in time and space is dependent upon circadian signaling. So that's kind of the place that you start. And when you start evaluating your health and your life, if you're not well, you don't want to start with your symptoms. You want to start with your location and time and space, which is when am I waking? When am I sleeping? Am I drinking water? Am I eating seasonally? Kind of where am I telling my body that it is at any given time? And then looking at sort of the genetics down the line to look at how the stress responses interact with the environment itself. Mm -hmm. Because that's typically what happens. The circadian biology gets mismatched. And then you have a stress response that turns on that then degrades the biochemical outcomes of the body mm -hmm. that represent your epigenetic potential. Yeah. And... And Colette, who who is actually going to be on Balanced Badassery, um, it has worked with Ryan. She's one of my best friends. Um, she has a tumor. She's been working, you know, to try to, you know, heal it herself for a long time. And it was so fascinating to actually get to witness somebody that I love and am very close to to go through Ryan's process. And it is a different process than any process that you will ever that most people have ever heard of. So can you kind of walk us through, and I know it's super individualized, uh -huh. but how, 
when do people tend to kind of come to you as kind of a consultant? Okay. And then how does that process look like? I mean, you said right now, you know, you go through, but even talking about your intake process and why why you feel like it's so important to to ask questions that most people understanding health are not asking. Okay. So I'm kind of the last resort for most people. Mm-hmm. So I would say 90% of my clients are people that are in late stage chronic disease processes, late stage cancers. They've seen 40 plus doctors and they're not getting results. And they're so, so they're willing at that point to kind of take a different approach. Mm-hmm. The genetics kind of brings people through, but it's typically people that have run out of answers and require a much deeper look into the person's kind of total self in order to start to unpack what's going on. I also work with some NBA players and some professional athletes, but that's a small portion. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about what I do in terms of an intake, it's really an assessment of what I call the multiple text of a person. So biomarkers, genetic documents, the narrative that the person uses to describe their life, how it's unfolding. We look at familial things, so a lot of the epigenetic patterns of the family. Mm-hmm. And then I'm also going to look at things like astrology and other things. Mm-hmm. If I if that person is open to it, I'm open to those types of things. So I'll look at all these different variables and start to look for the different texts saying the same thing. And so where the stories are aligning to try to unpack the root cause of things. So when we talk about genetics, what's important to understand about it is when you see these genetic reports that come out through these algorithms, they don't mean a lot in and of themselves. So you could have a handful of mutations, but unless you're looking deeply at whether they're truly expressing themselves, Mm -hmm. no intervention should be based on that alone. So I care most about this thing that's a timeline. And it's sort of your conception, birth to present day, and all of the major events that have occurred, physical injuries, emotional injuries, dreams that recur, lots of things that just kind of have enough meaning to grab your attention that you fold them into your story. Mm -hmm. And then we start to look at the patterns, and you start to see lots of patterns around certain ages and lifetime, certain relational kind of outcomes. And then that starts to be the locus from which I start to understand how the body is breaking down in response to stresses in life. Mm -hmm. And then I'll look at lots of genetic material and and whether it's been impacted by common infections like Lyme disease, Epstein-Barr. And I look for kind of long global historical changes and patterns in the lab biomarkers and all that kind of stuff. So it's dependent on the person. Sometimes I have a single lab. Sometimes I have thousands of pages of labs and images but generally speaking, the process is the same, and it's really just trying to triangulate to find what the core problem is and to start working on it. And typically, it's something that has begun in their early childhood mm-hmm. that's just unfolding itself presently, and the symptoms are now worse enough to get the attention of the person, but mm-hmm. it didn't start recently. Yeah. It's usually decades old by the time it's bad enough to go seek help. Yeah, and that's one thing that was fascinating um, going, you know, witnessing Colette's process was— there was some stuff going on with her genetically. There's definitely some stuff going on with her energy systems and her circadian rhythms, which she's kind of been, you know, she's educated, so she's been aware of. But then the one thing that was like both of us were like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe we didn't realize that was the emotional triggering component. You know, she had a severe breakup at the exact time that then this tumor manifested. And that was something, it was amazing for both of us. We were both there. (laughs) We we knew when it happened, but we had never, until she talked to you, really put that together. And I think that's a huge thing that most people don't ever think about is like one emotional event 
And how does how does emotional triggering and trauma play into this whole environmental and how your genes are expressing each other and how does disease happen in the body? It's a super important question. So two thirds of Americans score on a system called the adverse childhood experience system high enough to guarantee autoimmune processes active by the age of 30. So two thirds of our country has enough trauma emotionally to start expressing autoimmunity. So it's a ubiquitous thing in our culture. The problem is that the the expressions of it are fairly subtle. So typically viral infection is the major thing that flares around shifts in the emotions. Mm. And there are a lot of ways in which the physiology, even if you're eating really healthy diets, for instance, there's people that don't tolerate sulfur as an example that's in leafy greens and really healthy foods. That's enough to trigger fight or flight on a regular basis in people and it changes the heart rhythms. But typically you'll see as a pattern like the ages of 27, 28 in most people's lives are where you start to see manifestations of emotional injury. And astrologically, that's the Saturn return. So the Saturn return happens every 28 years, and there's a lot of clearing that happens during that time, Mm -hmm. work, life, family, that tends to devastate people physically. (laughs) Um, So I would say that probably 70% of people I work with, 28 is a really common age to fall apart. And sometimes it happens earlier. But the problem with trauma is that it sets us up in a lot of ways that's that's not good for our long-term health. So it gets us used to things like adrenaline and norepinephrine coursing through our body, which can make us hard, it make it hard to relax, and it kind of makes it hard for life to register unless it's at its extremes. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a big thing. And when you start to do trauma work, the problem with it is those chemicals downregulate, and so you actually get depressed before you get better. So this is also why trauma therapies are also things that people kind of stay away from. One, because talk therapies and therapies that don't focus on somatics are not typically that good at getting rid of it. Mm -hmm. But you also feel worse for a a period of time. But there's the emotions are molecules. And there's a lady named Candace Pert who wrote a famous book about this, The Molecules of Emotion. Mm -hmm. So as long as they're there, they're programming you to be in a certain state. And it causes kind of a head-to-toe arrhythmia in the physiological systems, especially in the heart. And then when you put that in an arrhythmic kind of relationship to the environment, those intersections of those two kind of imbalances are what tend to generate a lot of poor health outcomes. But you can't fix chronic disease without contending with trauma. It's impossible. So that's kind of the big thing. Most Western doctors, even the naturopaths, don't want to deal with it. One, they don't have the tools, so it's Mm -hmm. really not their fault. But it's very difficult. And I would say on average, women, generally speaking, are more willing to face it. Mm-hmm. The males that I work with are unwilling to ever acknowledge, you know, they've always kind of compartmentalized it and turned very rigid and, and kind of protect themselves against it. But it has to be dealt with unless that person's willing to just constantly bandage up the problems and you can get away with that. That's where things like biohacking fall into place. Mm-hmm. So biohacking is generally seen as this really cool performance oriented thing. But in most cases, it's bandaging yourself together to compensate for an imbalanced life. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where we get away with it. The reason why you treat the trauma is when you get to the physiological, the, the infectious stuff and you resolve it, that person can actually retain their structural integrity without taking supplements constantly and eating clean diets. And So we want to do that work, but it's difficult. And there's not a person I've worked with that doesn't have trauma scores that are sufficient enough to generate these really poor health outcomes. Yeah, there's a few things in there. First off, my life completely fell apart at 28. <laughs> 28 that's why I left. I mean, that's basically when I blew up my life the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then Ryan, Ryan actually was recommended me to, I would say probably one of the most transformational modalities of my life, which is EMDR, um, which has transformed how I am as a human. I mean, I think on the same levels as all of the personal work and psychedelic work that I've that I've done, but I think in an even more powerful, actionable way, um, and with somebody that I just am so over the moon and like <laughs> probably have blown up her practice with <laughs> I'm like, nobody can make an appointment with her because I've we've booked her out. But um can you explain what EMDR is and kind of why why it's important? You know, it's a somatic therapy, but Yeah, so the person we're referring to is Leslie Larson. Mm -hmm. Um EMDR is eye movement desensitization and repatterning. It's a somatic therapy. Uh, Leslie practices a version of it called natural processing. So it's a little bit different, but essentially you track, the eyes are tracking a cue. That's kind of the major way, or there's vibrating handholds that vibrate right, left, or as Leslie does, it's tapping the knees right, left. The purpose of it is essentially to kind of hypnotize the critical mind in order to start diving into the body itself and walking you within a certain proximity to a traumatic event. Mm -hmm. We've both been through these therapies, and it's profound because once you witness it, you're supported through it, the body actually releases it out, mm. and it doesn't have that hold anymore. So when you think about even looking into that space, it doesn't make you contract or mm -hmm. feel those somatic kind of experiences that overwhelm you, that cause you to flee psychologically. Mm -hmm. So the only therapies I've seen that work well with trauma are EMDR, and it's very fast. Yeah, it doesn't take that much weirdest. time. <laughs> and and it's not about the narrative, really. You know, that's not what you're there for. You're really there to dive in. I also like trauma release exercises mm -hmm. um, because you can do those on your own in between and it speeds up the process. Yeah. Mammals have an inborn mechanism to release trauma and it's the tremor response. It's just we're able to consciously override that. So when people laugh at animals that fall on the ground and shake after they've escaped predators, we should probably be doing similar things mm -hmm. after really traumatic upsets. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing I like to say about trauma before I forget it, trauma is not always like an assault or a bad accident. Yeah. Trauma is very everyday. So I, I w there's a story that I'm fascinated by. The Stan Groff, who your listeners may mm -hmm. know, uh, know a lot about, he treated a man in Germany. Uh, he had 60 LSD psychotherapy sessions. He had an affinity for uh, attracting partners who tried to murder him. He had been he had seven of his previous romantic partners had tried to take his life. And he was also kind of a mess, generally speaking. He kept doing these LSD therapies, no change. Then on his 51st session, he had an experience of himself at around the age of six months in a stroller in a field and his parents were about 100 feet away, and a cow came up and licked him in the face. Mm -hmm. He saw that, and all those behaviors stopped. So a lot of times trauma when we're young is a misunderstanding. It's mm -hmm. not understanding what's happening, internalizing, and usually not having the capacity to, to vocalize needs and to kind of get some context. Mm -hmm. And those things start to build greater and greater traumas that then we recognize. But... I've seen a lot of trauma that's not really that bad on the surface, and that's also the problem with it, mm -hmm. is that, oh, get over it, right? But it's not something you get over. And trauma happens to all of us. So this idea that some are traumatized and some are not is a fantasy. We're all traumatized. Yeah. And you can look at the effects of it when you watch people age through time. Yeah. And how well they're living their life. Yeah, I think that's a big thing that I talk to people about. They think that trauma is, my dad burnt me with cigarettes and locked me in the basement. Yeah. And it's like... 
my mom was late picking me up from school, yeah. you know, and I didn't know where she was and I was six, Absolutely. you know, like it's these small, you know, <laughs> I don't want to use the word microaggressions, but it's kind of like this small stuff mm -hmm. that you just, you did not have the capacity to deal with it at the time. It gets locked in your nervous system. Absolutely. And then it's so fast. I mean, going through EMDR was just this fascinating for somebody who's been so disconnected, you know, I struggled with body dysmorphia and, and all kinds of like dissociative issues with my body. And then to go into such a body centered practice for me, even though I'm a body centered person, but connecting my brain to my body yeah, was not, not something that I normally yeah. did. And I mean, just, I mean, weeping, weeping, weeping. And then an hour later, me trying to trigger things that would trigger so quickly and not be able to even go there was like, was that magic? <laughs> I mean, it really did feel feel very, um, very quick for how, how long I'd been holding on to so many things. And I don't have any, like, crazy, you know, more trauma than any kid raised in, you know, middle America kind of trauma. Yeah. Um, so what are some ways that you feel like, I know what you do is so specific to the person, but what would you say are some of the key environmental things that most people maybe are not focusing on that they could start to just bring some awareness and some attention to that can probably help most of the population? A, a lot of it's really just getting your daily rhythms kind of in particular ranges. So eating in restricted windows, preferably diurnal eating, so eating during the daytime only. Mm -hmm. um, trying to have consistent wake and sleep times. I mean, these are very common things that people talk about, but they're super important. Looking at the food that you eat, uh, the seasonality of it matters a lot. So you can actually wreck your circadian rhythm just by eating foods that are not in season because those foods have information inside of them. Mm -hmm. So more carbohydrates in the spring and summer and less in the winter and, you know, kind of changing or, or lining up those oscillations. The other thing is Wi-Fi radiation. So okay. EMFs, for a long time, I thought they were very overdetermined and kind of was suspicious of the conspiracy theories around them. Well, started looking into them more, and this is very important. So there's something called an endogenous human retrovirus that exists in pretty much every human. They were used by our genes evolutionarily to kind of evolve more quickly in the environment. Well, it turns out they're activated by Wi-Fi radiation. And so as we went from 3G to 4G networks, we raised the amount of radiation by about 85%. As we go to 5G, as AT&T already has, we're likely to start to see a lot more cancers and autoimmunity very quickly, especially in younger ages, because these retroviruses are being active. To give you a sense of this, a seven-minute phone call with a person who has Epstein-Barr on the iPhone will reactivate the Epstein-Barr. So one of the things that I like to say is, you know, airplane mode on the phones, preferably shutting off Wi-Fi routers, because what the Wi-Fi radiation does is it makes the water in the body unstructured. Oh. And so it causes chaos in the water body, which doesn't allow the cells to take nutrients in and out of themselves. So that's, mm -hmm. that's a big one that I'm concerned about. As far as how you mitigate EMFs, there's all these technologies. It's, it's De debatable whether they're being neutralized. But that's a huge one in the light that you take in. I'm not suggesting you go out and buy the orange glasses because if a pin prick of light gets around them, you're kind of negating that. Um, but really just matching your, your activity and eating to the time when the sun is in the environment and there's ambient light, going to bed at a certain time, trying to, to not eat for 12 to 14 hours a day so you can activate autophagy, 
and all of those things, minimizing devices on the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of a place to start eating seasonally mm-hmm. and taking a break and, and really taking stock and, and where you are every day mentally at night. So one of the things I tell my clients, I know that we've gotten you fully to where you need to be when you can sit in the dark by yourself alone and not have to be anywhere else. And if you cannot do that, it's unlikely that we're there. Um, that's one thing. So that's kind of a big thing to give you a sense of how these environmental mismatches are affecting. Five years ago, my average age in my practice was 47, 48. Now it's 24. And the reason for that is I have just as many 70-year-olds, but now I have four, five, and six-year-olds with dementia and Alzheimer's symptoms and other things. And so that, to me, is a testament to how much this environmental mismatch is growing mm-hmm. um, and how disconnected we are from the natural environment that has an immediate ability to retune the brain. So what I would say also is to get out in nature, forget about nootropics and things to calm the mind. Actually, just go take a walk in the woods. Mm-hmm. It does it much more effectively. We're epigenetically designed to do that. So. Lots of things like that and really saying no to the kind of hedonic treadmill that a lot of people get on of optimization and living on the mountaintop at all times because it really sets you up to never be able to come down and find the kind of expansiveness and the mundane reality that is here. But I, I see kind of our culture, especially in the world I'm in, is all about being on that mountaintop peak constantly. We're not designed to be there. And in fact, we don't need to be there to be happy. But that's the big longer term work is to settle into these daily rhythms, find a joy within those constraints and then try to unfold more depth in the everyday rather than having to constantly get on the top of things and find those peak experiences. That's the biggest thing that I see is that pleasure seeking just wrecks people. Yeah. And we've talked about that in depth over dinner is just like people that are so so stuck on that i have to do more i have to be better optimize 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 and they can never sit you know and like that's one of the things that i coach clients from the very beginning is like 95 percent of my clients i need you to sit and breathe and until you can do that we're gonna i'm we'll just sit here (laughs) like i'll sit here with you or you will have to figure it out because if you cannot sit and and just even just breathe, even if your mind at the beginning is rattle, 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 like we got to start at the base mode, (laughs) which is like, so I love that you share stuff that feels for so many very basic. And they're like, well, of course I need to do this. And I'm like, but are you doing that? Like the the amount of adults that I have to say that you, you need to set yourself a bedtime I feel like a nanny. Like, I'm like, do you have a bedtime? They're like, no. And I'm like, get, you have your seven year old has a bedtime. Why don't you? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, I I definitely am the bad cop mostly. (laughs) I feel like a grandfather or something. But yeah, I I think also to your point, though, the reason why we can't be still is that trauma is there. So you, I imagine, I know with myself, the more that I did the EMDR along with all the other work similar to yours, the more I could just kind of hang out and be. And I didn't know. And weirdly, I lost interest in things like exercise and a lot of the things that I filled my time with. And I'm not saying do that, but I'm saying that a lot of that constant motion is an avoidance of things. And that's very obvious, but it's not as obvious as it is when you start doing the work and you find how easy it is when you resolve the trauma to be present rather than trying to be present going around the trauma, which is a constant kind of battle in and of itself. But that's my whole fucking 35 years was like, was like FOMO never (laughs) can't stop, won't stop. And now to, you know, instead of do just be, 
You know, the amount, the amount of ease and relaxation that I've found now that I can actually sit and like be okay in the everyday. Mm -hmm. And like, I, I don't even want to go out anymore. And I don't give a shit about all the shit that I used to pretend mattered. You know what it mattered? It mattered so I could shut my fucking brain off and not process anything. And I could numb myself to a point where I didn't have to deal with any of my shit. And now that I've started dealing with it, I was like, you know what I really like? Making dinner and hanging out in my house. Yeah. That's what I like. And having real in-depth conversation with Absolutely. people. Not in some noisy bar where I can't even hear myself think. Uh-huh. You know, it's it's been a fascinating self-exploration. And so I just really appreciate that. You're on. You're on team. Do less. <laughs> do less. Be more. <laughs> One of the themes that I'm picking up too, and what you're saying. I mean, I got chronically sick, kind of as a result of running from my life and trying to do too many things. But I think getting sick is also sort of the wake up for oh. loving the self and finding authenticity. And unfortunately, that's the hardest way to go about it. But I think that that's really why a lot of this happens. I don't believe that people manifest their disease. I'm not into the victimization of people that, that contract really bad things, but the way in which we set our life up that negates kind of the self-love and externalizes all of our kind of validation plays into all this as well. And it's strange because our culture is not set up to reward. It's almost like all of the kind of presence practices have been appropriated <laughs> even by the biohacking world to the point where they've been turned into commodification exercises that for, make it even more distorted. So it's so hard also to do this in the context of our culture because mm-hmm. there's there's not a lot of reward for it. There's an essay I love called Quitting the Paint Factory on the Virtues right. of Idleness that came out in Harper's in 2004, and it looked at what primates actually do, and it's just laying trees <laughs> essentially you know, most of their life and living in nature and kind of not doing anything. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying and promoting that, but as an Austin native, slacker, being a slacker on occasion is worthwhile, especially if it's intentional. I love that. All right. We're going to go into a few rapid fire questions. Are you ready? (laughs) Do you have a spirit animal? Uh, Yeah. What is it? A possum. (laughs) That's awesome. I haven't heard that one. (laughs) What is one thing that you used to believe that you no longer believe? Wow, that's a tough one. Um, this is a very personal thing. Probably that that my impoverished upbringing, the poverty that I came through, limits me in a lot of ways that that I found that it doesn't. Mm. So I grew up extremely poor, and and I had certain things that I shot for, and many things that I did not. So mm-hmm. I was kind of limiting my horizons at all times. Yeah. Unconsciously. Yeah. That feeds into my dad's thing that. Anybody that has money is an asshole. I had yeah. that. I had yeah. that deeply imprinted yeah. in my brain that yes. kept me broke for a long ass yeah. time. I'll yeah. tell you. <laughs> I'm like, oh, maybe you shouldn't believe that. <laughs> Otherwise, they ain't gonna have any money. Yeah. Okay, final question. It's a two-parter. What advice would you give to your younger self? And you can tell me how old he is. And then, what advice do you think your 90-year-old self would give you today? Advice I give to my younger self is just to to relax. Mm-hmm. Um, and to appreciate all the things that made me who I am and unique. So my body, 
my mind, my background, because I spent a lot of time trying to be somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and it caused a lot of suffering. And now as I've had more self-acceptance, I've found that my life is, the people in my life and everything about it is better and I could have had a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And also kind of a second piece of that is to listen to those little voices mm. that, that are persistently knocking at the door and to not make them go away and try to will myself in a direction that, that I wasn't supposed to go. That would have saved a lot of heartache. 90-year-old self, God, probably to to live every day with a lot more intentional kind of or more intentional living, less fear, and to kind of focus on the small things, more intimacy, um, more idleness, Mm -hmm. doing things that that have absolutely nothing to propel me forward but that make me happy. Mm. Um, That's kind of it for me. That's playing basketball, watching basketball, being in the gyms and kind of bringing those parts of myself back that I kind of turned off when I turned, you know, 25, 26 that are now coming back and kind of causing a minor midlife crisis. So, <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, just to, to, to live more for the things that you're going <laughs> to regret not doing. Um, and to take it serious, to take life serious, not to the point of not living it, but to, to see each day as a kind of not a given thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, uh, for me to tell people how I feel about them, mm. I think would be the advice of my 90-year-old self to be more vocal about my affections. Yeah. Well, I think we can all all work on that. And I do think that that's just such a good lesson for everybody is like I'm a big fan of not taking life too seriously, but that you got this one fucking chance. Better better yeah. go do some shit you mm-hmm. love and laugh a lot more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So thanks, Ryan. I really Absolutely. appreciate it. Bye, guys. Well, I'm ready to walk in the woods. How about you? Or maybe you're actually in the woods listening to this podcast. That would be awesome. Wasn't that amazing? I just want to thank Ryan again for this fantastic conversation and sharing time and space with us on Balanced Badassery. The Balanced Badassery team includes me, Allie Waddell, producer Mariah Gossett, and audio engineer Jake Wallace. Thank you, everyone at Founding Austin, for your support. Remember, you can always follow me at Ali Waddell, A-L-L-I-W-A-D-D-E-L-L. And if you're enjoying the show, come on, leave me five stars. That would be awesome. Or review me on iTunes. That helps other folks find me and be more badass. And who doesn't want some more badass people in the world? Thanks again for listening. <laughs>